Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to episode four of Historical True Crime. I am your host Lizzie and I'm so excited to bring you another case today. I can't believe we're already on episode four. Time does fly. Uh, If you haven't checked out episodes one to three, I highly recommend them. We've covered some really interesting characters so far. And today we're going to head back to the 1800s. The late 19th century saw the emergence of a new phenomenon, serial killers who carried out brutally precise murders. Although not known as serial killers at that time, because the the term hadn't even been invented yet. Uh, If I ask you about serial killers from the 19th century, you're going to think of Jack the Ripper, H.H. Holmes, but women are murdering too. However, their tactics were often very different from their male counterparts. Women preferred to murder closer to home, as in most likely family members. They're also less likely to use violent means, so poison is frequently the weapon of choice. We covered in our very first episode Marianne Cotton, who murdered many husbands and a lot of her own children with arsenic. Uh, But today we're diving into another woman's case, and this time it's the life and crimes of Lizzie Halliday. So who is Lizzie Halliday? Apart from ironically sharing a first name with the host of this podcast, uh, and that's actually not going to be the first time this happens to me because we're very likely covering Lizzie Borden in an upcoming case. So um, I don't know what that says about me, but we'll we'll ignore that fact for now. Lizzie Halliday uh, was known as the Catskill Ripper, the New York Ripper, and most infamously, simply the worst woman on earth. Now we'll get into later in the podcast how she earns that name, but I want to go back to the very beginning. Uh, so Lizzie Halliday was actually born Eliza Margaret McNally around 1859 in County Antrim, Ireland. And when Lizzie was either three or eight years old, the records differ here, her family immigrated to America, likely in search of a better life, because this move would have occurred just after the Irish potato famine. I'd love to talk about what the Irish potato famine, also known as the Great Hunger, actually was. So in the 16th and 17th century, England conquered Ireland using military force. So under Oliver Cromwell, thousands of Irish people were killed and hundreds of thousands of Irish people were actually driven off of their land in northeastern Ireland. And these predominantly Irish Catholic um, people were forcibly relocated to the west of Ireland, where the ground is really only suitable for planting potatoes. So you might ask, well, why? Why were these Irish people relocated? Well, it's because Protestants from Scotland and England were given the land confiscated from Irish Catholics in exchange for their relocation to Ireland. So due to this strategy, uh, a sizable population of Protestant settlers who supported the British government emerged in Northern Ireland. Not a new move by any means for the British government. I mean, they had really perfected colonialism by this point. 
So in the US in 1843, we're gonna see the first emergence of a really destructive plant disease brought on by mold. And these invisible spores were inside what people thought were healthy potatoes that were transported to Belgium. In the summer of 1845, this fungus spreads through France and Southern England. By August of 1845, it reaches Ireland. Now, no other country in Europe depended on the potato as extensively as Ireland. So up to half of the harvest of potatoes that year and almost three quarters over the following seven years are destroyed by the infection. Ireland, which at this point is administered as a colony of Great Britain, was severely affected by the infestation since tenant farmers uh, relied primarily on the potato as food supply. A million Irish people die as the result of the famine and other connected causes before the potato famine does come to an end in 1852. But by then, about another million people were compelled to flee Ireland as refugees. And one of those refugee families included Lizzie Halliday. Uh, We don't have much information on her early life in America, but we do know that in 1879, Lizzie would have been around 20 years old. uh, She marries a man named Catspool Brown. And I don't have any details on how Lizzie and Brown met, but they did both live in Greenwich, New York, uh, and they have one son together who is institutionalized. In 1880, Brown uh, passes away, and the couple had only been married less than a year. But Lizzie is going to move on pretty quickly because in 1881, she marries Artemis Brewer. Now, there's a massive age gap in this relationship. So it wasn't necessarily suspicious that less than a year into that marriage, Brewer passes away. Now, in hindsight and knowing what's to come, these deaths are totally suspicious and likely not at all a coincidence. But at the time, No one really raises an eyebrow um, at her first two husbands passing away. Lizzie's not going to waste any time at all because she quickly marries her third husband, Hiram Parkinson. Within the first year of their marriage, Parkinson's going to leave Lizzie. There aren't really any details on why, but a very smart decision, and he really dodges a bullet. Almost literally. Again, as is Lizzie's pattern, she's going to marry very quickly, and her next husband's going to be a man named George Smith, a retired war veteran who was close friends with Lizzie's second husband, Artemis Brewer. Now, after only three months, Lizzie's behavior takes a dark turn because George accuses her of placing ar- placing arsenic in his tea. Lizzie's going to flee, uh, and that was the last time George is ever going to hear from her. Uh, like her third husband... He definitely dodges a bullet. This is not a woman that you want to stay married to if you want to keep your life. If you listen to our first podcast on Marianne Cotton, you'll remember that in the 1800s, arsenic was everywhere and a common part of everyday life. Primarily, you'd find it used in inks and dyes of printed wallpaper and clothing, but it also found its way into beauty products, uh, which promised women pure white skin, and this actually occurred up until the 1920s. Arsenic could even be found in the fabric of baby carriages, plant fertilizers, and medicines. Arsenic is colorless, odorless, and dissolves in water, making it incredibly easy to slip into a drink, say a warm cup of tea. Just to recap, uh, at this point in Lizzie's life, she's been married four times, two of her husbands have died, and she just tried to poison husband number four. 
So after attempting to poison George Smith, Lizzie is thought to have escaped to Bellow Falls, Vermont. This is about 222 miles away from her previous home. Lizzie arrives and marries another man named Charles without delay. But after two weeks, she disappears again. No one knows what Lizzie does during this time period, but she does reappear in the winter of 1888, popping up in Philadelphia. She finds another Irish family who had also immigrated to the States, uh, the McQuillans, and they had done quite well for themselves running a saloon on North Front Street. Lizzie is now going by a new name, Maggie Hopkins, and she decides that she's going to embrace her entrepreneurial spirit and open up her own shop. However, this time her plans literally burn to the ground because after a police investigation, it's determined that Lizzie deliberately sets a fire to her shop and is charged with arson in an attempt to collect insurance money. She's going to be tried and sentenced to two years at Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary. Lizzie's going to be released from prison in 1889 and changes her name again, this time to Lizzie Brown. She needs a job. She's just been released from prison. She's got no family. Um, She's killed already a few husbands and she needs to quickly find a way to make money and lodging. So she gets a job as a housekeeper for a woman named Mrs. Vaughn. And according to True Crime England, um, this is a direct quote from Mrs. Vaughn who comments on how Lizzie was commonly dressed and in need of both clothes and a washing, which isn't surprising as she had literally just been released from prison. Um, But after only a month, Lizzie is fired from this job. So back again in, in a desperate situation, Lizzie needs to quickly find work and she knows that men are easy targets for her. So she goes to work for a man named Paul Holiday, and he is 70 years old at this point and has already been widowed twice. Uh, he's got a farm in Burlingham, New York, and two sons who live with him, Robert and John. Although John is sometimes referred to as Frank, depending on the source. So Lizzie and Paul do get married, um, but this time it's for an, a rather interesting reason. Paul only marries her so he doesn't have to keep paying her her housekeeping wages. Because as he states, if we're married, she has to do the housekeeping for free. Clearly, romance is truly alive. Um, Anyways, Robert is going to regret this decision. Even if he does manage to save a few bucks, it is the beginning of the end for him. Lizzie's behavior starts to, again, take a dark turn. And one story that shows a little bit of how unhinged she becomes is that in 1890, she tells a livery man that she's a poor Irish woman um, and she needs to go visit her ill mother. So feeling sorry for Lizzie, the livery man lets her borrow a a horse and buggy, which uh, of course she never returns and instead sells and keeps the money. So her behavior, even though she's married, is not on the up and up. She is still a petty theft. Uh, And in 1891, Lizzie is again suspected of arson. So this time it's a mill and a barn. Um, But what is actually really sad is inside of the barn is Paul's disabled son, John, who dies in the fire. It's believed Lizzie didn't really like John and had deliberately set the fire to kill him. Uh, Paul instantly knows Lizzie is responsible, again, because it's widely known that Lizzie just didn't like John. 
she's arrested and sent to an asylum, but it's only a few months later where they declare her to be cured and she's released back to Paul. Why he takes her back is definitely a mystery and something that we actually don't have the answer to. Again, this is going to be a huge mistake because in August of 1891, locals start to question, where is Paul? We haven't seen him for a while. Paul has um, seemingly disappeared. And when people begin to question Lizzie as to where Paul is, she tells them that he's completing some masonry work um, nearby. This is inherently going to be suspicious because at the time, Paul is 73 years old and many people just simply didn't think he was capable of that kind of hard manual labor anymore. They also never heard Paul mention anything about the job or the work itself. So it's Lizzie's suspicious answer and the fact that no one has literally seen Paul uh, coupled with Lizzie's history of unstable behavior and murder and setting fires and people are going to call the police um, and demand that they investigate Paul's disappearance. And the police do get a search warrant and they uh, arrive to search Lizzie's residence on September 4th. And it's during this search that they're going to make a gruesome discovery. Now, not the one you're thinking of. They don't find Paul. Instead, they find the bodies of two women behind the haystacks in the barn. And these bodies are identified as mother and daughter, Margaret and Sarah McQuillan. These names may sound familiar because this is the mother and daughter of the family, the Irish family, who had also immigrated to the States, who owned the saloon that Lizzie would frequently visit. Um, And she stayed with that family on a number of occasions. Both Margaret and Sarah had been shot. There are a number of theories on how these murders occurred. One theory is um, that Lizzie had used a ruse to lure the women um, that she had a sick family member and they needed to come help. Another theory is that Margaret, as a friend, simply went to visit Lizzie, who shot and murdered her. They determined the date of Margaret's murder to be August 30th. Uh, And they think that Sarah grew suspicious as to why Margaret had not returned home. And she herself went to see Lizzie, where she was also shot and murdered. And this would have occurred on September 2nd. Lizzie's going to be arrested for these two murders. And according to True Crime England, while she's being arrested, she begins to behave very erratically. She strips off all of her clothing. She starts to talk incoherently. But police simply believe that she's faking insanity and they continue to process her. When police go back uh, to search the home again, they're going to make another gruesome discovery. And this time it is Paul. It's his mutilated body under the floorboards. And like Sarah and Margaret, he too has been shot. Lizzie's going to also be charged now with Paul's murder. And she's held in jail until her trial at the Sullivan County Jail. It's during this time after she's been charged uh, and she's being held in jail that Lizzie's going to become very popular in the press. According to uh, True Crime England, in the first few months alone, Lizzie goes on a hunger strike, attacks the sheriff's wife, sets fire to her bed, attempts to hang herself, and cuts her own throat with broken glass. It's reported that after all of these separate incidents, Uh, They have to chain Lizzie to the floor for the remaining time before her trial. 
All of these incidents on their own would likely have been newsworthy, but Lizzie doesn't stay quiet either. She decides that she's going to give interviews while she's in jail, specifically to Nellie Bly, who works for the Worlds. Uh, She's actually going to admit to Nellie that she's been married five times before Paul, and she did attempt to poison her third husband. She also told Paul's living son um, that she had murdered a husband in Belfast, but no one ever knew who this person was. I particularly enjoy uh, this quote from New York World reporter Edwin Atwell, who describes the case this way. From its circumstances, origin, conception, and execution, its unique characteristics, the abnormal personalities and peculiar localities it involves, and, above all, in the strangeness and mystery of its central figure, it is unprecedented and almost without parallel in the annals of crime. So Lizzie was big news, um, and I can see why. She's this really unhinged character. She's cre- she's committed these atrocities. This is not something people would have been used to, and they're going to want to know the details, the sordid details, um, the why she did this, the what's going to happen to her. And, and so she really captures the public's attention. What's also interesting is some journalists even begin linking Lizzie to Jack the Ripper because she had spent time in Europe in the 1880s. Even the sheriff at the time, um, whose name was Harrison Beecher, also seemed to be a proponent of the Lizzie Jack theory because he says in 1893, recent investigations show that Mrs. Halliday is in all probability connected with the famous Whitechapel murders. When um, Sheriff Beecher just point blank asked Lizzie about her involvement, uh, he says, Lizzie, you are accused of the Whitechapel murders. Are you guilty? And she replies, do you think I am an elephant? That was done by a man. I'm not sure why, but I kind of find that answer hilarious. And in all reality, she's very likely not connected at all to the Whitechapel murders. There's no evidence. There's no proof other than the fact She may have been near Europe in the 1880s, and anyone who was near Europe in the 1880s and later was uh, accused of a crime, specifically murder, they automatically get connected to Jack the Ripper. We saw this uh, also in our episode two, The Servant Girl Annihilator, where one of the suspects um, traveled to Europe and uh, again was linked as Jack, but both theories don't hold much weight. Lizzie is convicted of the murders of Margaret and Sarah on June 21st, 1894, and she's going to be the very first woman to be sentenced to death by electrocution. However, there's a bit of an uproar, uh, and her sentence is eventually commuted to life in a mental institution after she was declared insane. So she is sent to uh, Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, so let me know if I've gotten it terribly wrong. You might think that that's going to be the last we hear of Lizzie, or at least the last murder that she commits. But oh no. In 1906, she's found guilty of the murder of Nellie Wicks, who was a nurse at the asylum. It's believed that Lizzie steals a pair of scissors uh, and proceeds to stab Nellie over 200 times uh, until she dies. The reason? It's actually believed that Lizzie really liked Nellie. Um, And when Nellie told Lizzie that she was going to leave to pursue uh, another job opportunity, Lizzie gets very angry and proceeds to murder her. There's even a report that after the murder, Lizzie says, well, she can't leave me now. 
Now, thankfully, that is, in fact, the last murder that Lizzie ever commits. Um, And she's going to die at the state hospital on June 18th of 1918. Uh, As far as I can tell by natural causes, there is no indication that something else happened. And she's buried in an unmarked grave on the grounds of the hospital um, and laid to rest. Okay, and that's going to wrap up the life and crimes of Lizzie Halliday the worst woman on earth. Let me know if you think she actually deserves that title. I think history gives us quite a few contenders for women who could be the worst woman in the world. Um, But Lizzie Halliday was definitely not a good person. uh, And she deserved to be locked up for life. So that's it for episode four. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, We'll be back next week with a brand new case uh, from the dark tunnels of history. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any case suggestions or feedback, you can find us on Instagram at historical true crime pod, or you can reach us by email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. And we look forward to seeing you next week. See you then.